Amen. So, uh, a little more than a decade ago, um, probably a decade and a half ago, uh, I found myself um, in, uh, in a hospital room. And uh, we were getting ready for the, one of the most exciting moments in a, uh, a parent's life. Um, we were getting ready for, uh, for our son to be, to be born. Um, and I'll never forget the day. Um, we, uh, we got ready to go. Uh, Julie uh, started to have contractions. And, um, you know, we thought this was it. We were excited, you know, and I, I said to Julie something like, hey, let's just wait. You know, she got the kind of the first one that I heard, at least audibly from her mouth. Um, you know, she got the first one, and then um, I said, well, the doctor said to wait until they're, you know, like five minutes, and then she let out another bellow. And I was like, all right, I'll get our stuff. We got our stuff. We went into the car, and uh, we got over there. And we got over to the hospital, and they kind of checked her out, and they were like, yeah, it's not time. And I was like, but she's, she's in pain. Like, it's time. Like, this is, these are the signs. Like, it's time. No, nope, no. Nope. And they gave us some suggestions on things we could do to hurry things up. So we, we kind of went for a walk and did some other things, and all of a sudden the, the pain started up again, and we went, we went back. And they started to notice that there were some, uh, some difficulties, some complications. Uh, Julie was not progressing as, as maybe she should have. Um, and our big thing, I think a lot of first-time parents make this, uh, make this decision. But we were like, listen, we don't want any painkiller. I say we, okay? <laughs> I say that in the loosest sense of the term. Um, you know, no painkillers, no nothing. We want to do, you know, natural childbirth. We want to, we want to do it this way. Uh, but Julie was just in a, a ton of pain. And she was not progressing, so um, there were some issues with, with Billy's heart rate a little bit. Um, and they, they stopped the contractions. Um, they gave her something to stop the contractions. And uh, gave her something for, uh, for the pain. And then... Um, as the night kind of progressed, uh, we realized that um, this was probably not going to be our, you know, run-of-the-mill, normal childbirth experience, that, that things were not going to progress naturally here. So the nurse came in and, um, and said, listen, we, we know that you, you want to do natural, but um, if we have to do an emergency C-section, uh, we should really consider doing the epidural now. Um, if we if we don't do the epidural, you won't be allowed in the in the operating room. Um, if we have to do the epidural in the operating room, um, so let's let's just make that decision. And um, they gave her some medication, and she she started the contractions again after she had the epidural. And it was like a different woman. Like you know, I mean, I mean, she was she was fine. And you know, I'm looking at the monitor, and I'm like, yep, you're having another contraction. And she's like, really. You know, it's like, yeah, you're, you're having a contraction. Um, so they said, listen, get some rest because she's going to need to, to have her strength to, to be able to, to push when the time comes. So I took that as a sign that I could go to sleep. And um, if you know anything about me, like I can fall asleep at the drop of a hat, like I'm out. Um, so I, I fall asleep um, and it's probably one o'clock in the morning 
um, at this point uh, the next day. And at 3 o'clock, they come in, and they say, hey, we're doing an emergency C-section. we got to get her into the OR. Um, and everything happened fast. And, you know, I'm on two hours of sleep now. Um, and, uh, you know, so they, they gear me up in the, in the scrubs, and they get me all washed up and ready to go. And we go into the OR. And I'm like, all right, this is, this is great. So the doctor asks me a question, and he says, would you like us to put up the screen so that you don't see everything that's going on? We'll kind of, you know, give you a hand signal, you know, give you the fair catch signal when, um, you know, when it's time for the baby to come. And, you know, you can see us. I do not do well with blood, okay? Blood and I just don't, we don't mix. There's a reason I'm not a doctor. Um, there's a reason that, uh, you know, when the kids needed a Band-Aid, I was like, ah, yeah, Jewel, like, just patch them up, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't look at it, like I get queasy. So um, they got the thing up, and Julie's in la-la land, they got her, you know, stretched out here, and um, she's, she's feeling great, she doesn't feel anything, and um, the doctor gives me the, the fair catch signal, you know, so I get up, and I just get a glimpse of, like, red and then baby, and I'm like, yep, good, and, like, I, I sit back down real quick, and, you know, they kind of wipe the baby, you know, they wipe Billy off, and, and they hand him to me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like, I'm a dad. Like, this is awesome. I have a son. I'm so excited. And I look up at the doctor, and I see him looking at the other doctors. And I can tell that he's working hard, and I hear him say something. He says, um... I can't get her to stop bleeding. And um, I don't know that I've ever held anything heavier than my son at that point. Um, You see, Julie, uh, if you know Julie, um, she's not not a a, a large individual. Um, And uh, Billy was not an overly large baby, but... uh, what had happened was that uh, some of her organs internally had, had fused to, to other organs because there just wasn't enough space um, in there for, for Billy. And um, I have no idea how long they, they worked on her to, uh, to try to get the bleeding to stop. I do know that she spent a few days in the hospital afterwards. Um, but sitting there with Billy, what was supposed to be the most exciting moment in my life, all of these thoughts go through your head. Um, And they don't even make sense. Uh, You know, I remember thinking to myself, like, this can't happen. Like, this is not, this is not the way that it's supposed to, to happen. This is not the way that it's supposed to end. What am I going to do? And I just remember a calm coming over me. And it's one of those moments where you feel the presence of God. There's no good rationality as to why this calm came over me. But I remember remember the fear I had and then the calm. Now, the story resumes with uh, our doctor who, you know, I'm a football guy. He was a Bears fan. Um, my, my doctor, who's a Bears fan, um, he actually had a, a bandana on underneath of his, his little thing, and I could see the, I could see the, you know, 
the navy blue and the orange. And um, he said to me, why don't you come around the screen? And I was like, no, I'm good. And he's like, no, come around the screen. And he brought me around the screen and I looked at the floor. And the amount of rags that were on the floor with my wife's blood on them. Like, again, I don't do well with blood. Um, I, I totally pulled like a Johnny Bench. Like I was just, you know, I just stood there and I was like, oh my goodness, you know, and I had no idea what was going on. I asked them if I could leave <laughs> because I was going to either throw up or pass out. But I remember holding my son and the fear and the calm. Now, Julie today is, is fine. She's better than fine. Okay, she is, she's absolutely fine. The, the Billy is, is fine as well, as fine as can be, um, you know, for a 14-year-old kid. Um, but that moment is by far the most scared that I've ever been in my life. There's nothing even come close to that. Um, yesterday, I almost... I didn't tell my wife all of this, but I almost drowned yesterday. Okay, I went fishing, and I, I took a swim with my waders on in the freezing cold water, and uh, I took a swim um, and, you know, kind of got caught in the thing. I know for a fact I was not as scared at that moment as I was holding my son there. The most scared that I've ever been. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Our big idea for today is that when our passion is the will of God, he grants us the desires of our heart. When our passion is the will of God, he grants us the desires of our heart. Now, we talked last week about the fact that Nehemiah is a historical narrative, and uh, one of the things that's important in a narrative is characters. Characters are very important uh, to a story. Um, John and Stephen both listened to, uh, and, and Stephen Page as well, they listened to uh, some of these, these fantasy novels and things like that, and there's, there's one novel in particular called The Wheel of Time. And I started listening to it. And two chapters in, I swear that there were 40 different characters. And I was like, nope. <laughs> like, I just, I can't keep track of that many characters. Thankfully, in our story, there's not that many characters. But we're going to run into one here. So, in Nehemiah chapter 2 here. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him... I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Again, last week we talked about this historical narrative. So we get, we get another, another of our W's here right off the bat. We get a when. When are we? We're in the month of Nisan. Well, we talked last week that we're probably somewhere in the 440 or 450 B.C. era here. All right, and last, last time we were in the month of Chislev, and we said Chislev was like November or December. Nissan, not just a car, it's a month. Nissan is now. It's 
April, maybe sometimes March, a few times, very rarely it falls in May, but it is right now, it is April. For four months, what has Nehemiah been doing? Day and night, praying, fervently praying. Praying for what? Praying for an opportunity. Success in front of this man is what he says at the end of chapter 1. That he would have success. We looked at Nehemiah's prayer last week. And the end of chapter 1 ends with this statement. I was the cupbearer to the king. Now the cupbearer had certain responsibilities. Um, obviously the, the name kind of connotates what he does. He brings the cup to the king. Um, it's more than that, though. Uh, the cupbearer was kind of the last line of defense, okay, um, to somebody poisoning the king's wine. He would literally taste the wine before he gave it to the king to make sure that his cup was not poisoned. The king had to trust the cupbearer in order to enjoy his wine. It's a highly trusted position. Nehemiah has a very important position. Last week we said that Nehemiah is just a guy with a job. Well, his job is, is pretty significant. It's pretty important in the grand scheme of things. He is responsible for the life of the king. And he spends a lot of time with the king because the king likes to drink a lot of wine. He spends a lot of time in the presence of the king. So he says, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes. So who is King Artaxerxes? This is, this is our next character that we're introduced to. Who is he? Well, he's a king of Persia. He is a king of Persia. Remember, from our, our Bible history and just history in general, the Babylonians came in. They took over Jerusalem. We talked about this last week, right, Ron? They took all the, all the what? Who did they take? All the smart people and the... The handsome people, right? Took the handsome people. I said they took Ron and they left me. Um, you know, they took the handsome people. So they come in, completely destroy Jerusalem over a series of, of basically three incursions. They leave Jerusalem desolate. Totally laid bare. So the Babylonians come along, and then eventually the Babylonians get taken over by these, uh, this other group called the, the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians come in, and we actually have some, some decent kings. This is kind of a strange time in, in history. Um, we have uh, even Nebuchadnezzar at times. Nebuchadnezzar turns to God at times. He, he says of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, um, no other god could save in this manner. Uh, he goes even further after that. He'll send a letter eventually to all of the, all of the kingdom saying that, that God is God. We have others like, like Darius who develops this relationship with, with Daniel. Um, and he kind of gets caught in a, in a sticky situation where Daniel's going to get thrown in the lion's den. And we see that Darius cares about Daniel. He is a Persian king here. But then we come to this guy, 
Artaxerxes. And um, forgive me, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a, a rabbit trail here, but uh, have you ever heard the, the phrase that history is written by the, the conquerors or the winners, right? History is written by the winners. Um, I, love, I love the Greek culture. I love uh, the philosophy that came out of the Greek culture. Um, but the Greeks are kind of uh, an unusual group uh, of individuals because you have Plato and Aristotle and, and all of these great philosophers, but at the same time you have these like great warriors at the same time, like the Spartans and, you know, the Athenians and the Battle of Marathon and, you know, all of these like, like you know, rough, tough, you know, guys. And then you have the Persians. And the way the Greeks write about the Persians is basically they were the worst people to ever exist on the face of the earth. They were horrible. They were terrible. They mistreated people. They did that. But if you look at Persian culture, it actually wasn't that bad. Um, slavery did not exist in the Persian Empire as the Greeks and the Romans would know it. Slavery did not exist. The Persians were kind of the first ones to come along and say, yeah, we have our religion, but we're not going to force you to convert to our religion. We're not going to force you to do this. Uh, we're going to conquer you. You will be our subjects. You will not be our slaves, though. We're not going to try to indoctrinate you like we did, like the Babylonians did. They kind of introduced this idea that you could be conquered, but you could still maintain your culture and your identity and maybe even a little bit of your dignity. So the Greeks write about the Persians like they're terrible. History tells us, yeah, they're bad people. They don't know the Lord. They don't know God. But from a humanitarian perspective, wasn't the worst people to be taken over by. Wasn't the worst people to be taken over by. So Artaxerxes has all of these issues in history. Um, his kingdom stretches uh, from almost all the way to India, to Egypt, and then up into Greece. He's got a huge kingdom that he's got to take care of. And what happens uh, during the course of time is Egypt decides it's going to rebel. And Egypt says, hey, we're going we're gonna to break away from the Persians here. And they get an unusual ally. Because Egypt and Greece had been fighting a lot over the years. The Greeks come along and they say, you know what? We're going to help you out. We're going to come down and we're going to help you out. We're going to fight against the Persians with you. Well, that gets, you know, that gets put down. The rebellion gets put down. Persia wins. Greeks go back to Greece, and then they get another idea. They're like, hey, there's this island in the Mediterranean. It's called Cyprus. It's right outside. It's right across the way from that fertile crescent there. All of that area that's Persia, if we can take that over, We'll have a foothold, a stronghold, right in their backyard. Almost, for those of you who remember, I don't, I'm too young. For those of you who remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's kind of that idea that, hey, if we can get a communist country right next to America, that'd be great. The Greeks are thinking the same thing. The Greeks are like, listen, if we can get a stronghold right next to their empire, 
This will be great. So they come into Cyprus and they take over. Completely take it over. Artaxerxes, instead, the barbarian, the savage that the Greeks would write about, instead of going to Cyprus, he sends a negotiation team. And he says, listen, give us back Cyprus. And in exchange, we will give you half of Turkey and half of the Mediterranean Sea. You can have Greece. You can have all the Greek Isles. Give us back Cyprus and you can have all this land and we'll draw a line. And the Greeks say, great, that's what we wanted anyway. Instead of going in and killing a bunch of people, he uses diplomacy. He comes in and without a single person dying, he makes a a treaty here. Artaxerxes is not a, a dumb individual. He's not stupid. He's very, very savvy. He's got, a, he's got a way about him that he is able to negotiate with people. He's able to solve problems without the sword. And this is the king that Nehemiah is standing in front of. So he says, in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king, Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, already, he's already got wine. I think there's a reason this is included here. I I think Nehemiah walks into a celebration. He walks into a joyous occasion. He walks into a situation where there's already wine being served. When wine was already before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. What do we learn about Nehemiah here? Nehemiah's been praying for four months. He's been praying fervently for four months. He has put on this face every time he's had to go before the king. You know, history tells us that you weren't supposed to be sad in the king's presence, right? That's what history tells us. Don't be sad in front of the king's presence. Um, Is it me? Watch this. Nope. We're going to try them all. I'm going to keep talking while he's trying. Um, don't be sad in the king's presence. How many of you guys are fans of Downton Abbey? How many of you guys watch that series, right? Downton Abbey. Okay, I will raise my hand. I watched Downton Abbey. I also watched, uh, what is it, All Creatures Great and Small? Yeah, I watched that one too. Um, so I, I watched them all because Julie watches them. She'll sit there and watch football games with me. I'll sit there and actually love all of the you know, masterpiece theater that we get to watch together. Um, so, uh, so you look at the servants in Downton Abbey. Now, the certain servants don't necessarily look happy all the time, but they also don't draw attention to themselves at all. That's kind of the role of a servant. You're not really supposed to draw attention to yourself. You're supposed to be there, do your job, be pleasant about it, but don't draw attention to yourself. So he says, I wasn't, I wasn't sad in front of the king. Verse 2, then the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. The king looks at, at Nehemiah. And in the middle of this joyous occasion, Nehemiah walks in. Now, we don't get a real great description on, on how Nehemiah is, but maybe his, his eyes are red, 
Maybe he's just been crying. Something about him, it's obvious that he is sad. He's moving okay. He's doing his job like he should um, as far as bringing the king's wine. He's not doing it any slower. He's not limping. He's not coughing. He's not throwing up. He's not doing anything other than the fact that he looks really sad. But Artaxerxes notices this small detail. And to one of his servants, he says, why are you sad? This can be nothing but sorrow of the heart. What is sorrow of the heart? What does it mean to be sorrowful in your heart? Young people here, um, I, I remember being a young person. And I remember, uh, you know, that, that, that girl that I really, really liked. And she wouldn't reciprocate the fact that she really, really liked me too. Like, do you remember that feeling? Like, those of us who are older, can you think back and remember that feeling? How you thought to yourself, oh, you know, it, nothing else matters. Like, it's It's terrible. Like, oh, it's, it's horrible. Young people, when we, we don't get what we want, our parents say we can't go somewhere or we can't do something, how frustrated do we get? How down do we get? We want to let everybody know when we're teenagers that we didn't get what we want. Older people, when we don't get what we want, there's times that we get the same way. We get indignant. We get snippy. There's something on our heart that is making us sad. Sorrow of heart. When, we, when a friendship is, is severed, it makes us sad. When someone moves away, it makes us sad. Young people, when you move away, it can make you sad, sorrowful of heart. When you go to college, young people, some of you will get homesick. Sorrow of the heart. When we lose people that we love, death, we can experience this sorrow of heart. My encouragement to you guys this morning, part of my encouragement to you this morning, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad if what you're sad about really matters to God. See, Nehemiah's sorrow of heart revolves around the will of God. And we're going to see that in a second here. But his sorrow of heart is for the glory of God, for God's name to be glorified. That is why his heart is sorrowful. People are making fun of God because his city is in ruins. People are tormenting the people of God because they have no wall. This is why he's crying out. But then we see something else in the, in the character of Nehemiah. Then I was very much afraid. The king looks up and says, why are you sad? You've brought wine before me. There's wine here. This is a joyous celebration. We learn in a second that even the queen is sitting there with the king. 
There are some people in the room other than just Nehemiah and the king. And Nehemiah is scared. See, the king has the power to do whatever he wants. And if he's upset the king in some way that he doesn't know, he could be dead. Nehemiah did the one thing a servant is not supposed to do. Nehemiah brought attention to himself in front of everyone. He has now become the object and the subject of conversation in this joyous occasion. And he is scared. You ever feel all alone? Young people, this happens when the teacher calls on you and you don't know the answer. Every eye you feel like is looking at you. Um, my mother-in-law, unfortunately, she when we when we got married, unfortunately, her uh, that that we had like a candle lighting, like a unity candle, and her her lighter didn't didn't work to light the candle, and I felt so bad for her because I knew every eye was was on her. Uh, all of us, when something goes wrong in the sound booth, right? Everybody kind of turns around and they look at the they look at poor poor Levi back there, right? You feel all alone. You've, you've brought attention to yourself at a time that attention's not supposed to be brought to yourself. And you feel like everyone's looking at you and everybody's judging you. Nehemiah got scared. Remember, guys, Nehemiah's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's a guy with a job. He's not used to speaking in public. He's used to doing his job and doing it faithfully. Then I was very much afraid. Verse 3. Then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Nehemiah by that statement is saying, listen king, live forever. The reason I'm sad has nothing to do with you or your kingdom or anything you have done. Live forever. I am happy with my position. I am happy at the life that you have given me. I am happy. Live forever. If I die in this state as your cupbearer, and and that's all I ever am, I will be happy. Live forever. But then he gets bold. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah makes an appeal to the king. And his appeal has a tone to it. King, wouldn't wouldn't you be sad? Like, why shouldn't I be sad? You would be sad. Anybody would be sad. Anybody would be sad if their city lied in ruins. The the place where our fathers are buried is being desecrated. Many of you have lost loved ones and you go and visit their visit their their tombs or their 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 gravestones. How would you feel if somebody desecrated that gravestone? You'd be upset. You'd be sad, you'd be hurt. Why shouldn't I be sad? It's all been destroyed by fire. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We learned something else about Nehemiah here. 
Verse 43. Luke 6, 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is Nehemiah's passion coming out. The reason he is bold is because this is what's in his heart. The king hit the nail on the head. He said, this is sorrow of heart. And Nehemiah says, it's sorrow of heart, and this is what's in my heart. It's coming out of my mouth. These are the words. This is what is, what is consuming me on the inside. My city may have been consumed by fire, but right now, my heart is on fire. And it's why I'm sad in front of you. We come to the big moment in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is the conversation that Nehemiah has been praying about for four months. This is the moment of truth. This is, as we would say in Philly, this is put up or shut up time. Put your money where your mouth is, Nehemiah. You've been praying about this, and the king has just asked you a point-blank question. What are you requesting? What does Nehemiah do? So, I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't imagine this was a very long prayer. How many of you guys are masters of short prayers? Uh, yeah, she raised her hand. My mom raised her hand. She is, a, she is the master of a short prayer. I can't tell you how many times growing up uh, I, that I would hear the prayer, Dear God, do not let me kill this child. And I would be like, Amen! And it was usually after I had done something stupid. She's a master of the short prayer. She said them out loud. I don't believe Nehemiah said it out loud here. But he takes the time. He realizes, he says, listen, Lord, I have a plan. There is a plan in my heart for how to fix this. I have a plan, but God, if this is your moment, I'm, I'm not going to get in the way. He prays for strength. Verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Remember, guys, remember, Nehemiah chapter 1. This is the problem that we faced, that, that the, the gates were burning. He's just said it here. He said, This is why I'm sorrowful of heart. He presents the request here. Not just a question, but he presents a request. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. It's a big ask. It's a really big ask. The king could just say no. Nope. Stay here. You're a good cupbearer. I trust you. 
I don't feel like training someone else. And that would be the end of it. But verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Any of you guys uh, ever been in sales? Okay, this is a, this is a pre-yes right here. Okay, this is what we call a pre-yes. The, the customer or the client that you are requesting to buy your product, this is a pre-yes. Okay, you get excited in your heart. You're like, oh my goodness, we have a sale. Like, I think we have a sale here. Uh, how long are you going to be? And, and how, how long, when will you be back? Nehemiah gets excited here. I guarantee you he gets excited. He's like, oh my goodness. This may actually happen. He hasn't just given me a flat no. He's continuing the conversation here. It's a pre-yes. And this small part at the end of chapter 6 is the most important verse in all of Nehemiah. The most important verse in all of Nehemiah. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Uh, Think back to last week. Um, Nehemiah prayed a prayer. Um, uh, Extra bonus points, maybe a... uh, Maybe a candy bar to whoever can tell me uh, where I said Nehemiah's prayer came from, that he was quoting someone else. Who remembers where that was? Come on. It's my favorite book. One of my favorite books. Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter, who said Daniel? Who said it? Sherry, you get a, you get a, uh, you get a candy bar. You can tell me after the service which one you want. Um, so, uh. It's, it's my youth group coming out in me. I'm like, I'll just give away a candy bar. Like, that's all I ever do. Um, so, um, Nehemiah quotes Daniel chapter 9. In his prayer, Julie and I went through it last night. There are other sections of scripture that he quotes. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Um, we we kind of broke it down as we were, as we were talking through it last night. Um, but Daniel chapter 9, he quotes. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Remember, guys, the king says that he can go to rebuild Jerusalem. Chapter 9 in verse 24, the, uh, the, um, the prayer, if you want to look back on it, the prayer is actually starting in um, verse 4, halfway through the, the verse there. But if you read the beginning of that prayer and Daniel's prayer and then the end here, I'm sorry, Nehemiah's prayer, it, it lines up pretty good. But a little further in that chapter, in verse 24, 70 weeks are declared about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore Um, And build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, squares and moats. 
We refer to this section as the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 77s of Daniel. And Daniel gives us a math formula here. But he includes something in it. Look back. What does he include in it? In verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. Guys, I'm going to make a conjecture, and this is what I think, okay? This is what I think. I think if Daniel knew, or if Nehemiah knew the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, he probably knew the, this part just a few verses later, that a decree would go out to rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't just asking. He wasn't just asking for his cities to be rebuilt. Nehemiah was asking for the clock to start. And he knew it. He knew that if he could convince the king, if the king's heart was softened enough, if the Lord's hand was upon the king, that Nehemiah, a guy, just a guy with a job, could be a part of the awesome will of God. When the passions and the desires of our heart line up with the will of God, he grants us the desires of our heart. Nehemiah was asking for God to send the anointed one. For God to start the clock. So we say to ourselves, okay, we're, we're somewhere in that 440 to 450 B.C., and if we read through the rest of, of the chapter of Daniel here, we see at the end of the 69th week, the anointed one is cut off. So we do some quick math. And we say, okay, because I went to Bible college, I know math. Um, I say, okay, um, what is 69 times 7? Candy bar for somebody who can figure it out. Come on. Everybody's afraid to, to talk. It's just a math question. Oh, wow. 483! <laughs> 483 years! Do you know where that puts us, A.D.? Somewhere right around 30, 33, 36, A.D. The Messiah came. This is the reason I say this is the most important verse in Nehemiah. This started the clock. This event right here started the clock for sin to be taken care of, for atonement to be made. Guys, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you think that this Bible is just a bunch of books that were just thrown together. They were written thousands of years ago and they don't really make sense. The Bible is wonderfully and beautifully knit together. It is a great, it is the greatest story ever told. It is a love letter from God. Where he is telling us, listen, don't be afraid, I have a plan. And Nehemiah in his heart, he wants to be a part of that plan. 
The Bible is wonderfully knit together. So much so that at the very beginning, God said, I'm going to deal with sin. And in the law that Moses wrote, he said, I'm going to deal with sin. And in the prophets, he writes, I'm going to deal with sin. And in the narrative, he writes, I'm going to deal with sin. To the point where 483 years later, a young 33-year-old man who was also God would be sent to atone for the sins of all mankind. Those Pharisees and Sadducees at the time that gave Jesus such a hard time, they should have known. They should have known that they were on the precipice of something great. They should have been looking. Daniel told them, the Messiah is coming. The anointed one is coming. And Nehemiah says here, boom, the clock starts now. And they missed it. Guys, Jesus Christ came to this earth at the perfect time. God's timing is perfect. Nehemiah was there at the perfect time for the perfect reason. Even those wars that happened that we talked about, Artaxerxes, everything there happened for a reason. Why does Artaxerxes let Nehemiah go? Why? Well, he's got a guy he likes. Nehemiah. Where's Egypt? I'll do it for you guys. Where's Egypt? It's down here, right? Where's Greece? Greece is up here. Where is Jerusalem? It's right here. And it's lying in ruins. It's darn close to the front lines of both battles. See, God uses things throughout history to soften the heart of the king. The king isn't going to say, yes, Daniel, you are such a godly individual, and I believe in God, and therefore you can go. The king is thinking to himself, you know what? I got a problem down here, I got a problem up there, and I got a city lying in ruins on the front lines. You know what? If I send someone who likes me, who's going to say, oh, king, live forever, who's protected me, who has been in my presence for years and years... If I can get all of that and make him the governor of that area there, I got a stronghold. I got a guy I can trust. I got a guy who can take care of things. That's the way Artaxerxes is thinking. But fortunately, we have a God who thinks 10 steps ahead of everyone else, a million steps ahead of everyone else. God orchestrated all of those things to soften the heart of the king so that the moment Nehemiah would come and ask it would be granted to him. Guys, it's not just the stories of the Bible that God orchestrates, that God's plan is, is laid out. It's our stories. It's the stories of history. It's the wonderful miracles. Guys, there's going to be so much to talk about with, with God in heaven. God, why did you let that happen? And maybe we'll be gracious enough to let him lay it out for us. Say, this is why. You know what the sorrows of our heart can enact? If our heart lines up with God, we can be a part of the will of God. And that's where Nehemiah is. So much so that Nehemiah is now part of the story of redemption. Just a guy with a job who's scared. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. 
the decree goes out. The 69 years start. 69 weeks start. There's one other thing that we have to go back to. Anybody know what happens always in Nisan? The month of Nisan? Well, it's this time of year. What's coming up? Passover. Always in the month of Nisan. Do you think it's a coincidence that God includes what month it is? Do you think it's just so that we know that Nehemiah prayed for four months? Do you think that's important to know? It is. But Nisan's important. Guys, to the month, the decree goes out. And the anointed one is cut off. Jesus dies for the sins of the world. To the month. Our God is a God of timing. Nehemiah is in place for a reason. Nehemiah's heart is broken for a reason. Nehemiah prays for a reason. Artaxerxes is in power for a reason. God is orchestrating his will through his servants, but also through people who don't know him. They think they're serving their own purpose. And the passions of our heart line up with the will of God. He grants us the desires of our heart. So he's able to go. Verse 7, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let a letter be given to the governors and the provinces beyond the river, so that they may pass through, uh, so that we may pass through uh, when I come to Judah. And let a letter sent to Asaph, the keeper of the king of the, of the king's forest, that may be given me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and of the walls of the city for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Nehemiah continues to ask. The guy's already said, go. And Nehemiah says, you know what? If I'm going to go, I'm going to go prepared. And he says, he says, king, give me a passport. Give me a letter that says I can go. Give me something with your name on it that says I can pass through. Oh, and by the way, when I pass by the forest, the guy who's in charge of, of cutting down all the trees, I need material. Give me material. I need things to build with. And the king grants him everything. Why? The king granted me everything, granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. So we bring it to us. Here today. Some of us have done some amazing things in our life. Some of us have done some great things in our life. Some of us, we may have yet to do some great things in our life. If we know Christ, if we know God, the glory goes to Him, the honor goes to Him. I'm so frustrated when I read through or listen to a message that talks about how great Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was a faithful servant. He was a good man. But our God was great. Our God is the greatest. It's his power. It's through his mercy that Nehemiah is given success. Nehemiah may have had a plan, but his plan was part of the will of God. Guys, as we make our plans, as we've 
seen successes, let's remember, it's not about us. Sure, our heart may be broken, but God, let our, let our heart break for the things that break yours. Let our motivation be for what, motive, what your will is. God, let us be so focused on you that the desires of our heart are the desires of your heart. Not that we get a better job or a better car or a bigger house or we get honored at work. God, that your good hand is upon us. How many examples in scripture do we have of people that it just seems like anything they put their hand to, they succeeded? Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Everything the guy did just came up amazing. Nehemiah here, everything the guy does, it just comes up amazing. It's not because they were smart, intelligent, awesome people. It's because they were faithful servants. Where Babylon got it wrong. Where Babylon said, hey, let's take the smartest and the best looking. God said, give me the faithful. Are you faithful? What's breaking your heart? For Nehemiah here, Nehemiah was faithful. Guys, I got to tell you, this is not an Abraham story. This is not a man who was wandering around and God just said, you know what? Abraham, you, today you are going to be my follower. Nehemiah just didn't, didn't turn faithfulness on. I guarantee you, long before this story started, Nehemiah was praying like this. Nehemiah was a faithful servant. From the time he was a youth until now. This kind of faithfulness doesn't just get turned on. It's something that needs to be worked out. It's constantly humbling ourselves, Constantly telling ourselves, listen, the only reason I'm successful is because God has chosen to make me successful. Guys, I pray for you today. Father God, Lord, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the example of your faithful servant. God, I thank you that you are in control, God, even when things seem out of control. God, when countries go to war with one another, when we fall flat on our face, God, when we're embarrassed, Lord, when our heart is breaking, God, when we lose people that we love, God, you are in control. God, we thank you that you have entered our hearts. God, you are the only good thing about us. Everything else in us is evil. All the desires of our heart. But Lord, you can change our heart. God, you can mold us into a faithful servant. God, put your good hand upon us. Lord, give us success. God, allow our heart to break. Allow our hearts to be softened for the things that are in your will. God, allow our hearts to line up with yours. And Lord, give us the desires of our hearts, Lord, because they are your desires. God, make your ear attentive to us. God, hear our prayer today. Lord, I thank you for always being faithful, even with us who are unfaithful at times. 
God, call us back to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.